week we uh, finished up part of the uh, 20th chapter, and we're going to go through it uh, completely tonight, and then again, as I said, we'll back up at the end and get some of the specifics, but we want to tie the entire thing up in its entirety. And before we get in tonight and look again at some things, it's 20th, 21st, and 22nd chapter, I think it's good to go back and refresh our mind on the total context itself. And remember again, one of the important things to reading anything, I don't care what it is, reading or listening to anything, is to consider the context that it's setting. And there are numerous examples in the Bible that we can give to show you that a man sounds like he's saying one thing, and then he sounds like he's saying something entirely different if you just modify it or put another context. A good example is in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, where Paul actually advocates that men and women not marry, that they remain celibate, and that marriage was only something for those that were burning with passion and could not control themselves. And he said, it's okay, but better was a person that did not marry. And we look at that, and people have even used it to say that Paul advocated celibacy. And in the early centuries after the church, it was used that way. But we look at it very carefully, and we get down to chapter 7, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, and we find the modifying, modifying phrase, by reason of the present distress. In other words, Paul was writing to the Corinthians at a time when there was severe persecution of Christians, it was going to get worse, Paul knew it, and so because of the distress, in the same vein that God told Jeremiah not to marry, because he was going to save himself all the heartache that would come as he lost maybe his family, his children, and all in the impending doom that was coming on Jerusalem. And so in the same vein, so you read 1 Corinthians 7, and if you want to just cut verse 26 out of it, you could actually say that Paul advocated against marriage and said the best and most spiritual state was celibacy. But that really wasn't the case when we added in that one verse. In the same way, we've noted other passages like in 1 Corinthians. There are those today that will read Corinthians about the miraculous gifts. And they'll say, well, that's what the Bible plainly says, you know, the various miraculous gifts, you know, gift of tongues, etc. through there. And we point out something. We know, for example, that uh, if you look at the context of the situation, that Corinthians is written to a church that was established by the Apostle Paul at a time when the apostles were still living. And we go to the historical setting of the New Testament and we see that when the apostles established the church, they, they imparted these various gifts of the Spirit through the laying out of their hands. And that those gifts of the Spirit served a vital function at the time when the church did not have the New Testament and when it was being given and in the process of being confirmed. And so we point out, today, we have no apostles. There are no apostles, Paul or anybody else, to lay hands on anybody, party, miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Besides that, we have the completed New Covenant today. And besides that, we notice several other unique features about the miracles then and tongues and all as opposed to what we actually see today. So there again, we have something that we know is taught in a wrong way among many, many Christians. And it happens by, it is believed by very sincere people because they read it, that's what the Bible 
It reads just a little bit different than if you read Corinthians like Paul is writing to the church of Corinth that he established almost 2,000 years ago in a certain situation. Okay, we noted in the subject that we're dealing with, in Matthew 24, there are numerous passages there that have been used over the years to teach concerning the end of the world. And that the Lord is coming back on a cloud and his angels with him and, and all this imaginary like the stars falling to earth, the sun not giving its light and things of this nature. And yet we know if we put it in its context, Jesus said that that generation would not pass away until all, A-L-L, of those things took place. And we go back and, and start at the very beginning in the 23rd chapter, and we can say, see that again, he told those people, this thing will happen on this generation. And then we back up to the 16th chapter of Matthew, 27 and 28, and again the same thing. This judgment, this kingdom coming with power was going to happen at that generation. So there again, we can read Matthew, or we can read Matthew in its context. And let the Lord tell you exactly in the context when those things will take place. And then we go and we consider a broader context of the whole Bible. And we say, well, what about all this stuff of the, the uh, stars falling to earth? And the sun not giving its light. And, and the Lord riding a swift cloud. And we know that when you go back and consider the context of the entire Bible, that this was characteristic of the prophets of God when they spoke of the downfall of a city or country to use these terms. And thus we can read about the Lord riding a cloud uh, as he came in judgment on Egypt in Isaiah 19, verse 1. Uh, we speak of the stars being cast to earth, the earth shaken, uh, uh, the sun not given its light, and other such phrases in God's, through Isaiah, speaking of the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah, the 13th chapter. We read it again with Edom in Isaiah, the 34th chapter. And suffice it to say that we see that when the Lord utters his statements in Matthew 24, he uses absolutely no different terminology than what the prophets of old used when they spoke in terms of judgment on a country or city. And not only does he use no different terminology, but when we allow the Lord the entire context, he says that all of it will happen on that generation. And there again, it just simply is not, I don't know what would be the word the word to use. I don't want to use the word honest because I know there's a lot of honest people that have used that the other way. But it is not good reading, if you're reading to get information and let it speak for itself, to just simply pull things out of context and weave it into something that you want to believe, whatever it is, or, or to protect a particular bias. That when we let the material stand in its context, all of that is going to happen in that generation. Now, we move down to Revelation, and we note regularly that these apostles speak of a judgment that's coming about in an imminent time in their generation. And all these letters are written before 78 days. Peter's judgment that we studied and, and has been applied to the end of the world, according to Peter, that it was something that was soon to take place. And it was now time for judgment to get to the house of God. And thus, when we come to the Hebrew writer, this judgment was something that was about to take place. Hebrews 10, and verse 37. James wrote about a judgment that was imminent and soon to take place. In James 5, and verses 7 and 8. We noted that in Thessalonians, 
that if you read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, and just apply it as if the Lord were writing it to you right now, you understand one thing. But you take those verses and that chapter and put it in the entire context, and you have a people of that day being persecuted by the Jews of that day, and God's wrath being promised, and then you have a judgment that is coming imminently that will be like a thief in the night to those who didn't believe the Lord, but to those who believed Him, they would be alert and watch the signs and would escape that judgment and escape God's wrath. And we know that the figurative language that's used is the same language that the Lord used in Matthew 24. And speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, nothing unique about the language itself. Okay, now for all of that, we move into Revelation. And here again, we noted that Revelation has been used uh, to deal with things on into the future, not into the final judgment. And there's a lot of figurative language. In fact, I don't know anyone, no matter how they use Revelation, that will not agree that there's a lot of theory of figurative language in Revelation. We go to something else. The figurative language that is in Revelation is not unique to Revelation. <clears throat> It is used in other parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel, especially Daniel, especially Zechariah. In five of the 404 verses in the book of Revelations, well over half of them find their basis in allusions in the Old Testament. We noted something in the last couple of weeks also that Revelation is a piece of literature that we refer to as apocalyptic language or a message was written in sign language. And we noted that at the time that it was written, this was a prevalent literary style. That for about 100 years before Christ, about 100 years after Christ, this was a very prevalent style. And so some things that you and I read as strange was not so strange to the people of that century. Alright, now, our modified text for all of Revelation, again, remember it wasn't written in chapters and verses, John writes a letter, so let's go back and look how we started, and we're going to go to the end before we pick up tonight, and we start here in the very first chapter, the Revelation, verse 1, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Verse 4, remember we have identified seven literal churches and showed the close proximity and showed from history that John worked in that area. And so just as Paul was concerned about the churches like Corinth and others where he worked and started, John had a special concern among the churches that he had worked among. And so that's he's addressing the seven specific churches. Then look at verse 7. We know that this, this judgment is going to soon take place. The time is near. It's written to the seven churches. He's coming with the clouds. Verse 7. Every eye will see, even those who pierce him. All the peoples of the earth were born because of him, so shall it be. We note it again. The same kind of language that we find in Matthew 24, 30, and verse 34. Same language. And the same language we find in Isaiah 19, 1, relative to Egypt. 
Then in verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. Okay? So John tells you that he was a companion with them in suffering. So he tells you at the very beginning, he's writing to a people that are being persecuted, who are undergoing tribulations. John is a fellow sufferer writing to fellow sufferers. And this book is to give hope to them. It's to let them know that there is going to be a judgment to soon take place. And this judgment will be on the persecuting powers. The persecuting force against the Christians are going to be judged. And then out of that, God's people will come victorious. And all of this book is going to depict, then, this judgment that comes on the persecuting forces. And then God's people coming out of all of it in a victorious way. And all through here, second, third chapter, we've got these things to him that overcomes. I will give the right to eat of the tree of life to the paradise of a God. That these people are being persecuted, it was they that were going to have to overcome the persecution itself. And we noted that at least one here in the early chapters of the identifying persecuting forces against the churches are these people who claim to be Jews. But in reality, they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And that's in Revelation 2, 9 and Revelation 3, 9. So when he writes to the seven churches, he identifies a persecuting force against them as people who make the claim to be Jews, but in reality they're not. They are really liars or those of the synagogue of Satan. Then over here in the third chapter, in verse, uh, starting with verse uh, 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So he's going to do something in this judgment that humbles the persecuting force and causes them to know that God loves the Christians, that they are his people. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the eye of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. And so there was a period of trial coming upon them. And he says, I am coming soon. And we know at the time that John writes, up until Nero becomes emperor of Rome, in fact, Nero, during the first ten or so years of his being emperor, was not a persecuting force against the church. The Jews were the prevailing persecuting force against the church. But then something happens. Nero turns against the Christians. And for the first time, first time in the official history of Rome, since Christianity had its birth, an emperor becomes an official persecutor of the Christians. In fact, I was <clears throat> going to bring a book tonight, and I knew I wouldn't have time to get to it, so I'll bring it before we finish. But uh, a book that I was just reading in the secular book on the historical sources of this time, referring to some of the atrocities of Nero at this time. That some of the things that Nero did in persecution of Christians was so bad that even the Roman historians blushed and were ashamed and appalled at what took place among the people. And even made it clear that the real reason was not persecution. Nero was just simply satisfying his own lust uh, to persecute and treat people in that way. So our context is a persecuted man writing to a persecuted people about an imminent judgment that is going to make known that they are God's people.
people that's going to vindicate them. And it's something that is coming soon. And that is the situation as we get into it. Then we went through a series of these visions in the 4th through the 11th chapter. The 4th through the 11th chapter. Depicting the judgment situation. And then we get into the 11th chapter and we know something here. That what was going to be judged was the holy city. And it was going to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. That's in verse 1 and 2. So the John writes, when the altar is standing, the temple is standing, and the holy city is standing, and it's the holy city that's going to be judged. And then we noted also that uh, after the judgment on the holy city, he refers to this city, it's verse 8, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. And so we know here that the Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. It's being figuratively called certain phrases such as Egypt and Sodom and Babylon in this book. But it's the place where the Lord was crucified. And so now, notice what we've done. We've come from the introduction that says the judgment was imminent and it was coming soon. We have seen that all language is the same type that we find in the Old Testament when it speaks of the judgment on places. And then we get right to the middle of the book itself and it identifies uh, the city that's going to be judged as being the holy city, the place where the Lord is crucified, and the judgment on it. And we know it as a matter of historical fact, recorded by several historians, we use Josephus, that the war between Israel and Rome lasted three and a half years. And it culminated with the defeat of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the downfall of the temple, and thousands upon thousands of Jews going to their death, and the Jews scattered and becoming a history of our word all over the earth at that time. And then out of that would come Christianity to fill the earth. Now, we then began with the 12th chapter and moved on through to where we up to the 20th chapter last week. And again, we have a series of figurative-type language, but each time we have a battle going on. It's a battle between right and wrong. It's a battle where the, the people of God are being persecuted, but are being asked to hang in there. They're going to be delivered. And then we saw something in the 20th chapter. We had a reverse of something we had seen, had seen earlier. And that is, getting down to verse 4 and 5, I saw the thrones that were seated, who had been given authority, I saw the thrones in which they seated, those who had been given a seal, or seated, there it is, I've missed looking at one, one word, wrong word there, I saw the thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, we noted the contrast here. In chapter 6, we have the souls that are beheaded, that are where? Under the altar, asking the Lord, when is he going to take vengeance on their blood? And so hold your place right here and look right back over there in chapter 6. And let's see, coming on down to the ninth verse, he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Same thing we have over here. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, and holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. 
They were told to wait a little longer. Now, in verse 4, I saw the thrones that were seated, those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, the same thing we read over in the 6th chapter, only over there, they're in a defeated state. They're under the altar, and now he says that I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony, just like we read in the 6th chapter, but now we have a change. For Jesus, and because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads and their heads. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life, but a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death had no power over them. But they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Now, notice something also on this business of, I believe I've got the... Okay, notice Revelation 2 and 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt in the second death. And so you have overcoming. If you overcome, then the second death. And so you have somebody who stands up against persecution and overcomes and will not be hurt in the second death. Revelation 26. Those who have the part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them. Now here's the parallel that I made. The first resurrection... And he who overcomes are used in a sorrowless life. You overcome, and you will not be hurt in the second death. Or if you have a part in the first resurrection, the second death will have no power over you. The point is, he's not talking about a literal bodily resurrection here. But it's being used in the same sense. And remember we read in Ezekiel 37 and Isaiah 26, where we have, for example, in Ezekiel 37, the Jews who are beaten, defeated people, and they've been carried into captivity. But God has made a promise that they are going to come out victorious, and they're going to come back to their city. And so he depicts it with a resurrection. And we have souls coming up out of the ground, and, and their bones coming together, and signing on their bones, and, and the breath of life is in them. And so we have a resurrection depicted, but in reality, it's been used in a spiritual sense that he's simply talking about Israel has been defeated, carried into captivity. Israel's coming out of captivity. They're going back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the city. And it's depicted in that way. In the same way in Isaiah 26, you have, again, a resurrection that is not a literal resurrection. You have those people that are in a defeated state, God's people, who are going to come out victorious. Then you have those people that are the persecuting force against them who are going to be defeated and their souls will not come to life. And so the resurrection and the death there, again, is used in a figurative sense, depicting God's people at one time defeated and then coming out victorious. You have exactly the same thing here in the 20th chapter, that we have it used in that same sense, and it's a parallel over here. You've got the people who overcomes. They will not be hurt for the second death. And they who over, he who overcomes is used in a parallel way with those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death is on fire over them. Many of these people would go to their death, okay? But what happens? They go to their death. But then it says the, they will not be hurt by the second death. What about these people that died in the Lord 
because of their testimony of Jesus, and they die physically and they go to their death, do they have to worry about the judgment? Do they have to worry about a second, the second death? Do they have to worry about eternal separation from God? They don't worry about it. That's, they, they may go to their death, they may experience a death here. But the second, remember the word death simply means separation. But this second big separation, they don't have to worry about that. It has no power over them. They die, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. But on the other hand, what about those persecuting powers? Do they have to be concerned about the second death? They're going to be judged here, but they've also got to be concerned about the second death. It does have power. They go out without hope, with no promise of anything except eternal separation from God. And so you have a contrast here, and he's trying to tell these people, keep in mind, one of the things he's wanting to do is give them hope. Here you are, a Christian of that day, and you're supposed to be in the right, but Christians are going to their death right and left. And so he's saying, that's fine. Hang in there. Overcome. The big thing is the second death will have no power over you. You don't have to worry about it. But on the other hand, this other force, the second death will have power over them. And in depicting the, the defeat of the persecuting forces and the church coming out victorious, he does the same thing that he does over the Old Testament and depicts it in terms of a resurrection. And we see a parallel also between the sixth chapter where we've got the souls that have been beheaded. Keep in mind, none of this is a literal. It's what John is seeing in vision. And you have those souls not literally under an altar. But they're depicted that way in the vision of John. They've been beheaded. Then, now we have them under throne. And so now the, the thing is that they are victorious. And so we noted that when they became victorious, they would reign with the Lord. Well, the kingdom of God would have come with power. Up until this point, Christianity was no more than a little bitty wayward sect within Judaism. But all the time the Jews were persecuting and trying to stamp it out, the Christians were preaching that God's coming in judgment. God will begin his judgment at the house of God. God will judge Jerusalem. He will judge the temple. He'll judge Israel. And that was the promise. And so with that, Christianity will come victorious. It'll rise up out of a defeated, dead Jerusalem, and it will encompass the earth. And we noted that the word thousand itself is used and was used by them not as a literal thousand. In fact, a lot of times numbers are used. Not in a, when Jesus said seven times seventy that you forgive, he wasn't saying four hundred ninety. And when, I, when uh, over the Old Testament, he says, I've got seven thousand who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. He wasn't talking about a literal seven thousand people. And we noted last week that when he said, I'm the God of a th uh, the, the keeps his covenant for a thousand generations, or I'm the God of a, the animals on a thousand hills. That he simply used it as a term of completeness. He's a God of every hill. He's a God for all time. And so the, here we have a perfect, the Lord is simply going to reign, period. And it's depicted of that term, and we noted thousands, was the largest term that these people used at that time. Now, let's get our context. We come over here to the 22nd chapter now, because...
because, again, if you read that 20th chapter without looking at the first part, without looking at the last part, and without looking at the feminine language and the way that it's used in the Bible, you get a completely different picture than if you put it in its context. So here we are, we're reading the 20th chapter, and this judgment that's going to take place, but what about it? We come on down, and we get to verse 6. We're concluding the book. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. I, John, am the one who heard, heard and saw these things, verse 8. Verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Now let me ask you something. Can you think of a single solitary time in God's Word where there is so much emphasis put on the fact that, of the urgency of coming soon? It's almost as if the writer could have said it one time, didn't he? But over and over and over again, he says, I'm coming soon. And again, remember, they knew that Jesus had promised that he would come during the lifetime or that if the, during that generation. All right, now, to note a contrast here in verse 10, where it says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. All right, when they sealed up the book, they didn't have books like you and I have got now. They wrote it on a scroll. And when you folded the scroll, you put a seal on it to hold it together. And so in order to stress the urgency that it was going to be fulfilled, he said, don't even seal this book. Don't even seal it. And let's notice the contrast now. Flip over to Daniel 8 and verse 26. Daniel 8 and verse 26. Look at this now concerning the vision that Daniel saw. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true. But notice now, seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Okay? So it's told just exactly the opposite. Now here's an interesting thing. Daniel is given a vision about some things to happen a few hundred years down the pike. And he says, Daniel, seal it up. It concerns the distant future. Okay? We've come 2,000 years almost since Revelation was written. And according to some, that still hasn't come about. But yet when Daniel was being given information about something that was going to come past in a few hundred years, he says, Daniel, seal it up because it concerns the distant future, and it did. But here, he says, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. And then in verse 12 again, I'm coming soon, my reward is with me, I will give to everyone according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and they go through the gates into the city. Are we talking about a literal tree? Are we talking about literal gates? Are we talking about a literal city? Outside of the dogs, are we talking about literal dogs? Those who practice magic arts, sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, 
was sent by an angel to give you his, his testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the waters of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now, he's not speaking of the entire New Testament there. The plagues is in the book of Revelation, right? This is being written by John, and he's warning, as this book is written and handed to the seven churches, and as it's circulated, John is warning them, don't you add anything to it. In other words, you scribes, you don't pin it. When you copy it, you copy it just exactly the way it is. You don't add anything to it. If anyone takes away, don't take anything away from it. In other words, uh, here you are, some John's writing it, and here's some scribe that gets hold of this book, and he says, what in the world? This, I can't understand what the world John's saying, or I think he means this. And so he begins to add to it or to take away, and what John is warning, John is concerned about that. See, John knows that as he writes this book and mails it, John's writing one letter, and he's going to mail it, but he wants this letter copied. And to go, it's going to the seven churches, and then it's going to go all out. And so John knows that in copying, sometimes scribes try to improve on the information. Sometimes they put their interpretation over to the side. Sometimes they delete something. And so John wants to be sure that nobody tampers with this material. And so he says, I'm sending it out. Don't you touch this material. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. A special reference to scribes. You copy it just exactly as it's coming out. And again, the only reason I can see for such emphasis on that is that John realized that there was so much figurative language used here that there would be the temptation, maybe, of somebody to try and interpret or to take something out or to add to it to increase the understanding. And so John just simply wanted to make sure, and he warned, you don't, you don't touch this material. You don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon, amen. Now, let's go back to our context again. Here you are, one of those seven churches, okay? You're living at the time of Nero. You're being severely persecuted, Christians are. The Jews are trying to stamp it out. Nero is a nut that's on the throne. And to put yourself in the frame of mind of a Christian during the days of Nero, how would you have liked to have been a Jew living in Nazi Germany in World War II? Can you imagine the fear and the apprehension that every Jew experienced in his heart living in Nazi Germany in World War II, where six million of them went to their death? And remember, uh, you've read and you've seen how they were thrown into ovens and things like that. I don't know about you, but if I had been in a, a Jew in Germany in World War II, I think I'd have lived 24 hours a day scared. And uh, you, those people hid, they fled, they did everything to try to get away. People took them into their homes, hid them in basements, hid them in the attics. They tried to escape. There was tremendous fear. Hitler was no worse than Nero. There wasn't, a, there has never been a more ugly individual that's ever walked this earth than Nero. His own historians were embarrassed. And when you go back and read what he was doing, he took Christians and put animal skins on them and turned them loose in the arenas and then turned animals loose on them. At other times, Nero would put an animal 
more sin on himself and would go in and attract the attack with private parts of Christians. He was a bisexual. At other times, Nero had his own gardens lit with Christians. Now, this isn't Christians recording this. This is Tacitus, the Roman historian, who records it in disgust. And Tacitus wasn't a Christian. He looked down on him. But he didn't, even Tacitus didn't believe that any group of people, just like in World War II, I don't believe the Jews are wrong, but I don't believe anybody ought to be treated in the way that they were treated by Hitler. No, anybody, it seems to me, with any humanity would have to sympathize with the Jews in World War II. And so if you can picture a Jew in World War II, you can picture a Christian in the days of Nero. Can you imagine Paul in that Roman jail waiting to go before Nero, knowing all those atrocities? No wonder he wrote to Timothy and said, I know that the time of my departure is here. He knew he was going to his death. And so this is the situation. So here you are. You need this letter. And so John writes. He's got to be careful. He writes in a coded language. And he wants you to know that you're going to come out victorious. Now, look, would this do anything to you in that situation? If John is writing about, here you are being persecuted. People are going to their death. And John decides he's going to write you a letter about something that's going to take place thousands of years after your death. Now, that's really a lot of comfort. You see, these people already believe in the resurrection. They already believe that they can have eternal life. But they were also concerned about that situation they were in right then. And also, if you was on a cause that was new, as Christianity was in that day, and on the one hand it's been proven to you, but on the other hand, you're being killed right and left, you can begin to wonder, man, am I really on the right side? And so John is writing, and not only that, if you receive this letter, what does it mean to you to say, I'm coming soon? I'm coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. If he's talking about thousands of years down the pike. See, that's even deceptive language. And again, as we pointed out, there are many reasons why Christians need to look that over to be careful with it. Infidels have a field day there in taking sermons and books written by Christians and in their estimation showing how Christians wiggle out of that because they said, Lord, didn't come in the first century. They hadn't come since then. And Christians still keep preaching that and won't admit that he's just simply not coming. Okay, so the context of all that you read in Revelation 20, so when you go to it and you read it, you say, well, now this is what it says. What does it mean? Okay, well, before you answer the question, what does it mean, you have to say, what's the context? Who's he writing to? What's the situation? What's he really dealing with? And then... There's when you get into the interpretation of the events themselves. And to aid you in the interpretation of the events themselves, what does it mean? You have to say, what's the context? Who's he writing to? What's the situation? What's he really dealing with? And then, there's when you get into the interpretation of the events themselves. And to aid you in the interpretation of the events themselves is the fact that the very figurative language that he's using is the same kind of figurative language that God used before when his people were in like situations. For example, in Ezekiel 37 that we looked at, well, go back and read Ezekiel. 
And you'll read a multitude of allusions in Revelation in the book of Ezekiel, along with that literal bodily resurrection that is symbolizes Israel that's going to come out of captivity and go back and be victorious and restored to the city. Now, one other thing I'd like to uh, flip up for tonight before we end.
This will continue on through the Roman Empire until we come to the 4th century, and finally by the time we get to the 4th century, Christianity will whip, defeat spiritually the Roman Empire, and you will find no more. Official Diocletian in 303 will be the last one. Then Christianity will become the official religion of the Roman Empire. So what we're going to see in Revelation is the defeat of the beast, of this persecuting force against the Christians. It's going to be a period of time there's no persecution, but then the devil is loosed, is depicted in the vision, and even though Christ is reigning, even though he's reigning, that there are still some problems with the forces of evil. And we see this, it will continue on. So it is victorious state, and while he's reigning, and all down through the centuries, there's never been a time when we haven't had problems that we've had to contend with and to deal with. Okay, let's go ahead and call it for a night.